Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is God's word. We're wrapping up the series on the life of Abraham, and we've been saying that the book of Genesis is not a collection of disparate stories teaching us what it means to live a good life, but rather it's one single story pointing us to the heart of the story that we can plug into, and that's uh, the story of Jesus, the story of redemption, the story of the gospel. Now Abraham, we've been saying over the past couple weeks or months, he lived on the basis of a call, the call of God. And at the end of chapter 21, after all this journey, living in Canaan, and all the trials that he endured, Abraham starts to settle down. He now has a son, Isaac, who he's been waiting for 115 years, about 115 years. And uh, Isaac is now born, and and Abraham settles down. And how do we know that? At the end of chapter 21, he plants a tree. He plants a tree, and he's settling down. But we arrive at chapter 22, and this chapter, as disturbing and confusing as it may seem to us here, Um, It is the spiritual and emotional climax of Abraham's life, one of the best-told narratives in ancient literature. It makes people mad, it's absorbing, it's engaging, but at the same time, it's confusing. And and yet, at the same time, it's in the Bible, so we need to know. There there are so many things in this text. Uh, It's a struggle. Sometimes when you have too much stuff that you want to teach, you could probably make three sermons out of a passage like this, but we need to take some meaning out of this. And, uh, you know, I'm going to center this to sum up the entire series on the book of Abraham or the gospel according to Abraham. Verse 1, God calls Abraham. 
Verse 11, God calls out to Abraham again. Verse 1, he says, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. Verse 11, God says, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. Whenever you see passages like that in Scripture, it's the author's way of telling you that in between the sandwich, in between the meat, is the essence of the call. God's calling him in verse 1. God's calling him in verse 11. So in between, we're being taught what it means to live out on the basis of a call. And that's what we see, especially in the midst of trial, in the midst of loss, in the midst of testing. And so there's three things we're going to learn today. Um, it's kind of two-dimensional. You can see what trials look like, what trials feel like, and how we can endure the trial. Or another way you can look at it, because it's almost synonymous, what a call looks like, what a call from God feels like, and how we can answer the call. Okay? It's the same answer both ways. So first, um, what a call looks like, or what a trial looks like, and we see this in verses 1 to 10. The first two verses establish the call. Verse 2, it mimics God's original call. In chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, and then so on and so forth from there, as he continues to call Abraham to remind him of the call, he says three things. He says, go, meaning leave your current context, leave your social context, leave your emotional context, leave your cultural context, your religious context, your economic context. Abraham Abraham is called to go. And the second thing he says, he he says, I want you to leave. Abraham says, where? God says, I'm going to tell you later. I want you to go to a mountain that I will tell you later. Abraham never knows where God is leading him. He's just told to go and leave to that place. And finally, he says, I want you to offer up. I want you to offer up. The first time around, I want you to offer up your safety, your security, your wealth, your status, your culture, your family. And now he's saying, I want you to offer up your son. I want you to offer up your son, your only son, he says. What does it mean to offer? What does it mean to sacrifice? God says, I want you to offer up the one you love. Why? Why does God tell Abraham to do that? God was referring to Abraham's center, his spiritual center, his emotional center, his motivational center. What do I mean by that? The the firstborn son, it it was Abraham's only son, but the firstborn was a representative of all of his status, of all of his wealth. It, was, it, was, it represented Abraham's place in life. In other words, it represented his self-worth, the center of his worth. God was asking for more than just the sacrifice of his son. God was commanding Abraham to offer everything, every worldly thing that could possibly satisfy Abraham's sense of worth. That's what I mean by the motivational center of worth, the things that, that motivate you to do what you do now. It's all driven by a center. For Abraham, it was his son. Because everything about his status and his wealth centered around his son. You've got to recognize your call. How do you know that God is calling you? Once you realize that there's no earthly foundation that can support you, once you start to realize that there's no earthly foundation that can support you, God is starting to call you. That's how you know. Now, what does that mean? The Christian is not someone who just hears the call of God who just acts on the first call. Obedience, in other words, it's not a one-time deal. You know, that's not how you grow. You grow by rehearing the call. From chapter 12 to chapter 22, in those 11 chapters, God constantly reminds Abraham of the call. And each time he reminds Abraham, it comes with action. 
Abraham lives a big life as a result. He takes big risks. He's constantly living on the basis of trust in that call. And so the way you grow is this. You grow by rehearing the call again and again and again. You have to make the call a pattern of your life. You have to you look at Abraham time and time again. He's hearing the call again and again, and, in, and it results in sacrifice. It results in offering up. The call is what makes you, but the call is also what grows you, what matures you. Over and over, God says, go, leave, offer, go, leave, offer. And he's doing that to a person like Abraham. He's certainly doing that to people like us. Go, leave, offer. And as a result, Abraham lives a big life, a big life in the midst of devastating loss. One thing, there's one universal truth that all of us should know, if you don't know by now, you know, but I'm sure we do know by now, is that one day, life will rip everything away from us. We're on literally a ball of rock that's hurling through space. And it's hurling at astronomical proportions and speeds. Life will one day rip everything away from us. It doesn't sound very encouraging, but it's true. Your youth, your uh, good looks, everything will one day be torn away from us. And so uh, we're, we're constantly looking. You know, Ernest Becker, he was a Pulitzer Prize winner for writing his seminal piece of work, which was written in the early 1900s. He wrote a book called uh, The Denial of Death. And he says, basically, all of life's quest, everything that we do, our center is basically with the knowledge that one day life will rip everything, including our lives, away from us. And our response to that is hinged on multiple things. And he goes on and he catalogs those things, romantic love. It's our way of dealing with the fact that one day everything will be ripped away from us. Our wealth, our pursuit of a career, our wealth, fame, fortune, all our casual lifestyles, depending on how you live your life, it's all a response to the fact that one day we're all gonna die. Life will be ripped away from us. And our way of responding to that results in the way we pursue the things that drive us. Now, here, if you learn to offer up, look at Abraham's life. It builds in him tremendous courage. It builds in him tremendous uh, resilience. Abraham becomes a great man, not because he was so obedient at first. It's because he lived on the basis of the call. It put him in tremendous situations where you saw tremendous weakness and at the same time opportunities for greatness because of the power of God that's revealed within. The call here is to sacrifice his firstborn son. He says, I want you to offer up your son, your only son. It's his life-defining moment because everything about his life hinged on the birth of this son. Everything about the promise of God hinged on the birth of this child. And now God's telling him to sacrifice him. Now, what do trials look like? First, we're going to go through this very quickly. Trial, verses 1 to 5, very private. Sarah is not even mentioned in this text. You don't even hear from Sarah. There, you know, throughout this text, God is speaking only to Abraham. I mean, it's Sarah's child too. It's very significant that it's Sarah's child actually because they had another son born of another woman. And they sent him away. But this is Sarah's one and only son as well. But God is dealing only with Abraham. Abraham's alone. He's not going to anybody else for counsel. He's not going to anybody else for advice. No one's going to understand this agony. It's too confusing. It's too painful. It's too overwhelming. 
That's the private nature of the test, the private nature of this trial, the private nature of the call. Next is the pace. You can, look at, you can see that from verses 3 to about verses 12, 3 to 10, 6 to 12, right around there. You see what Abraham does. He gets up early the next morning, and uh, you see the pace. You see what he does, all the things that he gathers, all the things that he does to prepare for this journey, and it's a three-day journey. So everything is very slow, but all of a sudden, as slow as the pace is, when you get to verse 6, the pace of the description starts to slow down even more dramatically. All of a sudden, conversations start to take place between him and Isaac. It's the only recorded conversation in this, in this uh, narrative between him and Isaac is verses 7 to 8. And you see uh, the granular aspects of what he's doing with the wood. Everything. Uh, you know, it starts with the three days walk, the journey. But then all of a sudden, time starts to slow down and you start to see the granular aspects. You know, when you suffer, if anyone here has suffered greatly, if you read the accounts uh, of people who had suffered a loss during the, time, the period uh, now known as 9-11, when the World Trade Center uh, went down, and you hear the accounts of the people, and what it, it, most of them will tell you at some point that they fell to the ground. And all of a sudden, minutes felt like days. Everything slows down. Sometimes life feels like everything stopped. Everything happens in slow motion. You kind of see that happening. It usually happens in the face of a trial, a test. Abraham's experience here, he's in a pressure cooker. That's what the author's trying to convey. Everything's happening in slow motion. It's play-by-play here. And lastly, the intensity. You see the private nature, Abraham's alone. And he's, he's, uh, everything is working in slow motion because he's in a pressure cooker. The intensity, significant details now from verses 6 and on are left out. We're not sure where Abraham's going, for instance. It doesn't really tell you that. He's just supposed to trust. The intensity, the uncertainty, the demand, the urgency. Verse 2, take your son, your only son. That's what God says. You see the doublet there. Your son, your only son. Anytime you see that doublet existing in Scripture, it, it, it represents emotional intensity. So God is actually speaking to Abraham with emotional intensity. Take your son, your only son. I want you to offer him up. There's incredible intensity here. What's the test? What's, how do you recognize the call? When you see that there are situations in your life where it's only between you and God, it's, it's only between you and God, it's private, and the pace starts to become granular, you start to measure your words, you start to measure your thoughts, you start to look at your actions, every little detail, it's becoming alive to you. And you feel the intensity and the urgency of decisions that have to be made. It creates almost a quake in your life. That's how you know you're being called. That's the essence of a call. Suffering is normative. Everybody's going to suffer. Everybody suffers. There's not a single person who lived on earth that did not suffer. The very best, most perfect person that ever lived on earth was Jesus. And he lived a life of suffering. But in the midst of the quaking, in the midst of devastation, can you recognize the call in your life? Can you recognize that God is present and active and he's calling you? It's hard to do that when you're in the middle of the suffering. Now, you can respond the way most people respond. They respond with resentfulness. They respond with bitterness. They respond oftentimes with despair. Or you can recognize with wisdom that God is calling you. God is actually waking you up and he's calling you. 
That's what a call looks like. That's what a test or a trial looks like. Now, what does it feel like? And you know what it feels like because everybody who reads this passage who doesn't understand the passage gets angry. What does it feel like? It feels like agony. Abraham is being asked to offer up the unthinkable. You know, Isaac is at the age of marriage. A lot of us, we look at Isaac in this passage because he's so submissive. We think, you know, Isaac must be like eight or nine years old. It's not true. By this point, Isaac is about 15 years old, anywhere between the age of 15 and his mid-30s. That means he's your age. He's, he's in his, anywhere between 15 and 35, and, uh, and Isaac uh, is, is so submissive, but beyond the submissiveness, we see decades of relationship being built between Abraham and his son. So one sense, right there and then, you see the agony. But he gets up early in the morning. It basically means he probably didn't sleep all night. He probably agonized all night. Verse 3, he gets up early in the morning. And he doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He doesn't go and seek God again and say, hey, let me just make sure that you're clear on what he does. There's none of that. There's no argument. There's no cl- He's very, very clear. He doesn't fight with God. He understands. The text never tells you how he feels. It's ironic. The author never here verbally or explicitly explains how Abraham feels. He wants you to witness how he feels through his actions. He doesn't tell Sarah. In fact, Sarah isn't even mentioned in this passage. And verse 3, he cuts the wood by himself. He knows that this is going to be the wood that's going to consume Isaac. And uh, the trip takes three days, several days. And verse 4, you sense the agony and the pressure, and just the disparity. And, and uh, at the end of the journey, Abraham says, we're going to worship here on this mountain. He ties somehow with all the craziness going on in his heart and his brain. He says, we're going to worship here on this mountain, and we're going to come back down to you. Why the agony? Lots of people hate this story. You know, the subject matter is horrible. It seems like God is too ancient you know, like those Incan gods or the Aztec gods that call for human sacrifice, you know, so we say this God doesn't seem to be any less gracious than those gods. Remember, God doesn't tell Abraham, Abraham, I want you to murder your son. That's not what he says here. Number one, if he would never say that, it goes against his own values. And number two, he doesn't, if, if he did it, Abraham probably wouldn't have done it. You know, or Abraham could have just taken a knife out and stabbed his son right there. But that's not what God tells Abraham to do. He says, I want you to offer him up. This is not a test of, you know, Abraham's obedience. Will you? Do you really love me? You know, let me see. I want you to kill your son. Ah, that's not what he does here. You know, we can't moralize the story here um, by saying, you know, Abraham showed tremendous obedience. So as a result, we have to be like Abraham. Most people will tell you, you know, uh, most churches, most uh, people, most scholars will even tell you that this was a tremendous act of obedience and we're here called to act like Abraham. Abraham obeyed. Look at Abraham. Be like Abraham. When God asks you to do something unthinkable, you must just go and do it. That's not what he's doing. Now, on one hand, obedience is important. Unconditional obedience is important. But that's just an application of this text. It's not the center of this text. And I'm going to explain to you that what God was asking Abraham to do, what God was commanding Abraham to do, was far more horrible than just, hey, murder your son. The significance is far deeper than, Abraham, I I want you to just uh, show me that you obey. In the ancient days, 
life centered around community, much like our Eastern cultures today. You can't separate your personal life from your family life a lot of times. Life centered around community and family. And so your wealth, the wealth of a family, was centralized on one person. It starts with the patriarch, the father, and the firstborn son, primogeniture. It was a common theme throughout all ancient cultures, not just this culture here. And so primogeniture, passing on your wealth, centralizing your wealth. Why? Because back then they had big families. You could have 10, 12, 15 children. You know, because, you know, the more children you had, you had better likelihood that at least several of them will survive, you know, the first couple years of the, after their birth. But once you had many children, rather than dividing up the wealth, because then the wealth would dissipate very quickly, you centralized your wealth on one child, and it was always the eldest son. You centralized your, your wealth on the firstborn son, and it would be his responsibility then to portion out the wealth as time goes by throughout the course of the decades after the father passed away. So this wealth was centralized on the eldest son. Dividing it was, was foolish. The eldest son had everything as a result. He was the one that had all responsibility. He had all the wealth. And, 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 and you know, uh, given a family in an ancient cultural context, the ultimate hope then of the family's progress was centered on that firstborn son. It was always on the firstborn. This is why God always demanded the firstborn. He says, I want you to give me your first fruits of the harvest because if the first fruits were good, then the rest of the harvest would be good. I want you to sacrifice your firstborn livestock. When you sacrifice, I don't just want your you know, calf. I want you to give you the firstborn calf. Why? Because there's no guarantee that there be other calves. I want you to give me your firstborn. It symbolized everything. And here, Abraham is told to do the unthinkable. I want you to sacrifice your firstborn son. The firstborn son was the culmination of all of a family's wealth and status and, and uh, uh, your, your reputation. The father calling, being called to sacrifice the ultimate representative of his being because the firstborn would carry his name. Offering Isaac was more than sacrificing a son. For Abraham, it was, me- it was forfeiting his measure of worth. It was forfeiting his worth, the center of his worth. And it was actually even more than that. There's actual deeper significance than that. It was sacrificing God's own promise to him. What was God's promise in chapter 12? And reiterated through the chapters. I will use your son to redeem everything that's broken in the world. And you will have descendants that are greater than the stars in the sky, greater than, than you can count, greater than the sand in the seashore. To forfeit his one and only son will be to forfeit that promise. It confused us. It, it's confusing. God was using the very concept of a firstborn, something that Abraham can understand, telling him to offer it up to offer up the centerpiece of his family, the centerpiece of his life. But what he was trying to do is he was teaching Abraham that, what I, that every family owes a debt to God. Every family. Every family beyond their wealth owed a debt to God, a sin debt to God. Abraham understood this. Abraham, because he had committed many flaws throughout his saga, his quest to Canaan, and, and throughout his spiritual journey, 
And what God was telling Abraham, just, you know, Abraham understood the concept of the firstborn. The reason why I want you to sacrifice your firstborn is the same reason why I want you to sacrifice the firstborn livestock, the firstborn that sacrifice and offer up your first fruits. You owe a sin debt to me. Your family owes a sin debt to me. And the responsibility is always placed on the firstborn. Just as much as the wealth is concentrated on the firstborn, the responsibility of that sin debt is on the firstborn as well. Abraham, you know, for us, it's hard to, you know, understand the representative nature of the firstborn. But Abraham, in that day, clearly understood. And that's why there was no argument. That's why there's no fighting. Because he understood exactly what God was asking him to do. To offer up Isaac is to pay back the sin that this is how God would redeem the world through the sacrifice of Abraham's son for his own sins, for Abraham's sins as well. He understands. God's telling Abraham, a son from your descendants will redeem the world. The dismemberment and consumption of Isaac, Abraham's realizing now, that's how he's going to achieve it. His own guilt will be the result. The consequence, the consequence will be his own son being laid down. That's the deeper significance. So on one hand, God is removing his functional gods. God is removing Abraham's functional gods. What's a functional god? You know what your functional gods are by the things that devastate you most, the things that make you fall, the things that make you quake, the things that, you know, your worst nightmare. That's your functional god. That's the thing that acts as your motivational center. If this were to happen to me, then I would just fall apart. I would quake. So on one hand, God is removing those functional gods from Abraham, but more deeply, the agony is in knowing that his entire community's sins would fall on his son. And he would be offering up the promise that God had made him to multiply his descendants. He's forfeiting God's promise because of his sinfulness, because of his sin debt. And he's agonizing over that fact. He's agonizing over what? On one hand, he knows God is just. The sin debt has to be paid. God's not just going to let it go. And that's the reason why none of us can let sin go. If someone gravely wrongs you, if someone deeply wrongs you, you know an apology is not enough. If that person says, well, you know, casually, I'm sorry, but you, it created you significant loss in your life, you know a sorry is not enough. Something has to be paid. And so this sin debt, this cosmic spiritual sin debt has to be paid. Abraham knows that. God is a God of justice. Just like we, in many ways, are people of justice. But on the other hand, God also made him a tremendous promise. The promise of God to multiply Abraham. Abraham, you know, his own name changed from Abram you know, father, right, to father of nations, Abraham. And so, uh, you know, this, this promise of God would have to be forfeited. He's trying to reconcile the justice of God with the promise of God. How do you do it? How does he do it? Now, we're all going to experience times of just utter misery in our lives, times where we're just thrown to the ground, if not physically, times where, we're, you know, we're quaking. We all have things in our lives that represent the sum of our hopes. It could be our careers. It could be our families. It could be your reputation. These things are the sum of your hopes, your pedigree, your status. And, and when you elevate these things to a level of worth or value, 
losing these things results in what? Quaking. Devastation. I want to submit to you in this passage that your suffering is probably not proof of the absence of God or the hatred of God or the punishment of God but more the presence of God. The active working of God. And if you're thinking with wisdom, if God gives you that wisdom to realize that and see that, then you're going to see that it's an actual work of the grace of God. Abraham is still trying to be faithful. He tells his servants to stay and he says, me and my son, we will go up to the mountain, we will worship, and then we will come back. He's trusting that somehow, even though he's being asked to sacrifice Isaac, we will go up and we will come back. Tremendous faith. It's the only way he can reconcile the justice of God and the promise of God. He's just trusting. He's agonizing. You know, Christians, we're so quick often to not show that we're agonizing, to not show our agony. We always say, oh, it's good. God is good. It's all good. But it's not good. There are going to be times in life where you will be just brought to the floor. Abraham is agonizing. But he also is trying to understand. And, And what does that tell you? Trust the word. Remember the word. When you're suffering, remember the word. Recall the word in your suffering. Do what it says. Even if it's hurting you, do what it says. God may very well be removing a tumor, a tumor of greed, a tumor of pride, you know, a tumor of reliance on something that's ultimately going to fall apart anyway. It's ultimately going to be ripped apart anyway. What's a tumor? A tumor is something that's growing inside you that when it first starts to grow, you don't realize it. You don't know it. Somebody else actually has to look in and tell you, you've got something growing in there that needs to be taken out. Because if you don't take it out, it's going to consume you and kill you. And taking, going under the knife is not easy. It's painful going under the knife. But under a skilled surgeon, it's going to save your life. It's going to change your life. Trust the word. Trust the word. Recall the word in your suffering. Now, we talked about how do you recognize a call how do you recognize a trial? How, do you, how, how does a trial feel? How does a call feel? How do you know you're, you're experiencing a call in, in terms of how it feels? Now, how do you answer the call? How do you endure the trial? Verse 6, 7, 8, the slow motion results in a conversation. The slow motion of the events results in a conversation. It's the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac in this interchange, in this narrative. And uh, we see the fire in the wood. Actually, it's the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac in the entire Bible. So it's very significant. And, you know, uh, what does Isaac say? Well, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? Isaac knows. Even Isaac knows that a lamb is needed. A sacrifice is needed in their worship. And this region, uh, they're, in, they're standing, they're uh, ascending the mountain of Moriah. It's the ultimate site where the temple would be built. What's the temple? A temple is a place where the priest ultimately enters in and does what? Performs the sacrifices. So here in this precursor to the temple, we see Abraham and Isaac, the first sacrifice on this mountain. And uh, Isaac is right. He says, where is the lamb? And Abraham's response is, God will take care of it. God will take care of the lamb for us. God will provide. 
And uh, what he says here is, you know, he's trying to reconcile. Either A, the sacrifice is going to be Isaac, which means that God's justice will be satisfied, or God will provide another way. And so uh, inherently then the promise of God will be satisfied and the justice of God will be satisfied. And Abraham is kind of waiting too. He's, trying, he's curious too, but he's agonizing, he's in pain, but he's trying to understand and he says God will provide. He's semi-comprehending what God is trying to do. He just can't reconcile it. The penny still hasn't dropped. The shoe hasn't dropped yet. In other words, I don't know where the lamb is, God said. He, sa- he says, I don't know where, the God, where the lamb is. But God knows. God will make a way. God will provide for us. Somehow the debt of sin will be paid and God will live up to his promises. He can't forsake his promise. But he can't for- forsake the sin. Somehow both of them will be reconciled. I can't reconcile it. Somehow God will reconcile it. The name of the mountain, verse 4. Verse 14 is what? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. It's not I will provide. It's God provides. When Isaac is placed on the altar, he goes willingly. Abraham is 115 years old. Isaac is at best in his mid-30s. If Isaac did not want to be sacrificed, he could have easily overpowered his father, his 115-year-old father, easily. But he does not. Willingly, look at the love of the son for the father. Look at the trust of the son for the father. Abraham loves his son. Isaac loves his father. He knows he's being sacrificed, but he goes willingly. And just as he's about to be sacrificed, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 17 to 19, uh, says that Abraham, in faith, believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would bring his son back to life. God will somehow still live up to his promise. Verses 10 to 12 here in this text. He's about to sacrifice his son. God stops him. And instead, they behold a ram that's caught in a thicket. The Hebrew word here for ram, you know, verses 13 to 14, uh, for for the thicket, sorry, um, is, is the word eights. It's a particular word used for the word wood. Eats, it's the Hebrew word. It's a word that's predominantly used whenever you see wood corresponding to God's judgment. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. That word translated is the word eats. In other words, the curse of God's judgment is what we're looking at here. That's the wood that we see the ram being caught here in the thicket. And Abraham realizes, he recognizes that. He says, God has provided this lamb. God provides, God, you know, if God let Abraham sacrifice his son, then salvation would be earned through obedience. You would have to obey, spend the rest of your lives obeying God, sacrificing to God in order to be saved, in order for your sins to be paid. But here, God stops him because he says, basically what he's saying is, it's not based on your obedience. Abraham, Abraham, He says, now I know that you're willing to sacrifice your son, your only son. You have not withheld your son, your only son. And there he allows, he provides a ram that's caught in the thicket. In Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. That word is eats. In 2 Samuel, you have Absalom. He was the son of David, conspiring against his own father for the kingdom. He was known mostly because he had beautiful hair. And as he's riding along, they, they knew among them that there was a conspirator, somebody who was trying to kill their king. 
And they're trying to figure out who that conspirer is, who the conspirator is. And all of a sudden, as they're walking, Absalom's hair gets stuck in a branch. And if you can imagine what's happening here, the, the horse underneath him is continuing to walk, but Absalom is hanging by his hair on this tree. As soon as he drops, the people kill him. And it's a very confusing passage if you don't understand what's going on. They see the tree of judgment, and they know right away that this man, David's own son, is conspiring to kill his father. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Here's this ram stuck in a thicket. God's going to provide the sacrifice. God's going to provide the sacrifice, says Abraham, and he does. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist, when he first catches a glimpse of Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Behold the ram caught in the thicket. This is the one who will pay the sin debt for his people. The region of Moriah is the place where the temple would ultimately be built is, is in the vicinity of another hill, Calvary. That's pretty much the same place. A place where another ram would be caught in the thicket for the world. Isaac carried his own wood. He carried his own wood up the mountain to provide the sacrifice. Jesus carries his own wood. He carries the cross up the same mountain to provide the sacrifice. Isaac almost faced the knife and of God's wrath, but Jesus fully succumbed. He was fully consumed under the knife of God's wrath. Do you see that? Jesus did face it. The same word for wood, eights, corresponding to judgment, is the same word used with respect to the cross for the judgment of God, the full wrath, the full judgment of God. On Moriah, God was giving Abraham a picture of his agony. God was giving Abraham a picture of his own agony on the cross when his own son would be sacrificed. Abraham, he agonized at the thought of his son dying. But God, imagine the agony. You know, Abraham was spared. Verse 12, he was spared. He says, you know, you were not willing to withheld your son, your only son. God is looking at Abraham with emotional intensity and he says, you are spared. But on the cross, Jesus cries out with that same doublet, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, God is looking at Abraham and he says, with emotional intensity, you are spared. But yet, he allows his own son with the same emotional intensity to say, I am being consumed. If you can imagine the agony of Abraham facing judgment for his son, his son facing judgment on the wood. The agony of God on the cross watching his own son being consumed for our sins. The agony of God is full. God is enduring the same trial. You know, Jesus on the cross agonizing for his people. Agonizing in pain. Agonizing and saying, my God, my God, my God has forsaken me. My center of worth, my emotional center, my, you know, my, my motivational center, this is my deepest love has departed from me. But God, in looking at his son, is seeing his center. He's seeing his ultimate representation of his being. Hebrews chapter 1. This is God's own firstborn being sacrificed on the cross. That means that all the world's sins, 
The sin debt is now falling on the responsibility of Jesus. And on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, the responsibility of the firstborn has fallen on me. And it is finished. The debt is paid. You know, on the cross he says, to die, which basically means he's crying out, he's saying, it is finished. It was a financial phrase. It was a phrase that represented the transaction is made. The debt is paid. We look at that and we read that as it is finished. It is finished. God looking at his son, pleased to see that his son is being sacrificed for his people, says it is finished. The agony is fullness, is full. The intense emotional language is full. And yet the agony all the way up the mountain, father and son, God and his own son in Jesus. When Jesus was forsaken, the justice of God, once and for all, was fully satisfied on the cross. And when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, the love of God, the promise of God, fully satisfied on the cross for his people. Do you see that? Jesus agonized. God agonized. So that we would never have to suffer the ultimate agony to be separated once and for all in spiritual death, eternally separated from God forever. We would never have to experience that again. That puts our suffering in perspective. Our suffering is a worldly suffering. It's going to last for a short period of time. It feels like agony now, but what God is doing is he's putting you in surgery. He's removing the emotional centers of your life because he knows that those things, if you hinge too long on those things, it will lead you to the ultimate agony. To save us from that agony, we're going under the knife. But going, we're going under the knife of a surgeon. Gee, because Jesus on the cross went under the knife of wrath. He went under the ultimate knife of God's wrath. You know, when we face trial, we don't act in faith. We forget the call. When we get envious or covetous, when we get distracted by worldly you know, desires and pursuits, we don't act in faith. We, don't forget the, we forget the call. We don't recall the word. We don't trust God's word. We say we do. You know, momentarily, but we don't trust God's word. We functionally don't. We take matters into our own hands. We get anxious. We get embittered. God's calling us quietly to trust. We do what seems right to us. We don't live in faith. But we trust God's goodness. We trust God's love. How would we live? Abraham, Isaac, submissive. Jesus trusts all the way of Calvary to his death. We can endure trials. We can answer the call because God is challenging what we depend on as our functional gods. He's trying to save us again and again and again. You know, when you, when you give up your emotional center, you know when something's not your emotional center. You know when something's not your motivational center because it doesn't hurt to give it up. But when you give it up, it feels like death you know, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, I die every day. You know what he's talking about? He was once a very wealthy man, very well respected, tremendous reputation. And he, was, he studied under uh, Gamaliel, who was actually uh, second order to one of the great, great philosophers, either it was Socrates or Plato. Tremendous lineage. And yet he says, I die every day. What he's saying is, I'm giving up. I'm offering up every day. And it feels like death. This is, Abraham, uh, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, a spiritual giant, we call him. And yet every day he says he feels like he's dying. To give feels like death. If you're giving up something you love, it feels like you're dying. 
feels like we're dying. But when you see God's love, willing to sacrifice his own son, the Trinity literally being ripped apart for you. When you see Jesus on the cross agonizing, being ripped apart for you, that represents the blessing and the promise of God for you. Can you see God's love? Can you reflect and recall God's love when you suffer? The words of the famous hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know that saith the Lord." Will you do that? Will you live that way? Let's make that a pattern of our life. Will we do that? Let's pray.